Forces Radio Network presents The Leadership List. Welcome to The Leadership List, a production of the American Forces Radio Network, because great leaders never stop learning. In this edition, retired Marine Corps General Richard Butch Neal, author of the book titled What Now, Lieutenant? Leadership Forged from Events in Vietnam, Desert Storm, and Beyond. His book resides on the professional reading list of the Commandant of the Marine Corps. Welcome, General Neal. Great to have you here today. Well, thanks very much. I'm really looking forward to uh, your questions. Hopefully, they're not too difficult. I think you're going to do great. I'm your host, George Maurer, and your story, sir, is a fascinating one. You went from a forward observer in Vietnam to the national spokesperson for the Defense Department during Desert Storm at the direction of then-chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Army General Colin Powell himself, by the way, and then to Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps, where you were assigned the very difficult task of overseeing the Marine Corps' first 4A into the don't ask, don't tell policy. If there was a flashpoint going on at any time in your career, you were right there, weren't you? Always. It sort of seems like that, although, you know, with hindsight, they don't seem as as difficult as they were at the time. Uh, but, um, yeah, they were challenging times. Fortunately, I always seem to have uh, good leaders around me and also good folks working for me. Always a big help. Well, your book is simply a fascinating read, so why don't we just get started, okay? Fine. Leadership Tip from What Now, Lieutenant. Surviving difficult times requires effective training. In June 1965, you went through something called the Basic School, TBS, as you called it in your book, like the television network, TBS. Of course, Vietnam was ramping up at the time, and you say in your book there was no mystery about the fact most, if not all, students in attendance were headed to war. And one of the questions or theoretical questions you faced repeatedly during your training was, what now, Lieutenant? Obviously, the inspiration for the title of your book. Sorry to start the interview with a two-part question, but I got a lot of them lined up for you, unfortunately. But I think you can handle it. Why did this become the title of your book? And please explain the thoughts and feelings you were having, knowing as a brand spanking new lieutenant, you would soon be facing men whose lives depended on your decision-making abilities. It becomes obvious, uh, particularly for those that were in the Marine Corps and probably the other services as well. Uh, during the basic training of young officers, one of the techniques used by the instructors was to put you in situations where the question always came up that, what now, lieutenant? And it might be, what now, lieutenant? And they give you a scenario where one of your young Marines got into mischief while on liberty uh, out in town. Or it might be, what now, lieutenant? Uh, the enemy is closing in. Uh, what's your course of action for telling your folks what to do? Uh, so that's kind of why it was, um, it, it kind of rose to the top. It, it, I didn't start out with that as the title, but it seemed like a, a perfect way to capture what really set the tone and feeling for the book. 
Sure. And as you were going through this training, knowing that you were going to be in life and death situations and, and men were looking to you uh, for leadership, what goes through a young man's mind knowing that is your future? It's going to happen. Yeah, I think the, the premier thought during that particular time, given uh, the circumstances and situation in Vietnam and knowing full well that um, probably – 75% of the class was going directly to Vietnam. Others were going to um, specialty skill schools, uh, whether you were an aviator or, in my case, uh, being an artilleryman. Uh, and then we were going to Vietnam. So there was no doubt throughout the class that, in fact, all of us would eventually end over there in one way, shape, or form. And so uh, with that in mind, the lessons being taught at the basic school, we paid attention because um, the instructors were good, the topics were spot on, and we knew very well that, in fact, uh, at any one time, we may, in fact, be asked to react in, a, in such a scenario as a combat situation. And hopefully we knew the right things to do to make sure you took care of the young Marines that were under your purview. Had the, the weight on your shoulders had to be immense. That's the, that's the only word I can think of. It had to be incredible. At that time, it probably wasn't as uh, distinct as it would later become once you got into country in Vietnam in this particular case. I think all of us were still right out of college. Um, we had no experience as Marines except for, in my case, a platoon leaders class, which was two summers of six weeks each. But that was about it. And um, I think the the faculty and the staff that uh, were at the basic school wanted to make sure that they gave full faith effort to make sure that we understood the seriousness of what we were about to be engaged in and that uh, they that the instruction that they were imparting across the classroom or out in the field, whatever the case may be, was grabbed a hold of by the young lieutenants so that, in fact, when in case a situation arose, they knew the correct way to answer that particular situation or scenario. And when you first arrive in Vietnam, you soon met a Captain Charlie Pyle, who you first considered an obnoxious New Yorker. Uh, that's a bit funny to me, by the way, for someone like you who grew up just outside Boston, another town where people are kind of known for being, let's say, a bit opinionated. <laughs> <laughs> and you quickly learned that Captain Pyle was an outstanding company commander. And in your book, you called him a student of history and a true warrior who knew everything about war fighting. And you also said, perhaps most importantly, he went to great lengths to teach and prepare his Marines. What were the lessons you learned from Captain Pyle? Yeah, he was he was an interesting character as as I as I explained in the book. You know, I had this massive red mustache, and he had red hair, and he had a a, a sort of a a New York arrogance about him. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, he was a teacher and a mentor, and he understood tactics. He understood the right way to lead young officers, and in fact, officers, he, he took it upon himself to make sure that we understood that we gained knowledge from what he had already gained through experience. And so um, he, was a, he was a first-rate teacher for all of us, and um, I watched him carefully. I was the FO, so... Footnote, an FO is a forward observer who serves with frontline troops and directs artillery and airstrikes 
as well as shares battlefield information. I was the FO, so I didn't get into the day-to-day of maneuvering uh, platoons or squads or any of that nature, but I watched how he conducted it with his young officers. And then at the same time, I would watch the NCOs, the staff NCOs, and those other young lieutenants who are infantry officers and how they responded to his instruction and responded to his ways of doing business. Now, not long after that, it was on Hill 70 that your first real-life what-now-lieutenant moment happened. As night fell, you began to hear mortars being launched on your position, and very quickly, the North Vietnamese Army, or the NVA, were in full-blown attack mode. And things got bad very quickly. In fact, your company commander, Captain Michael Getlin, called in an artillery strike on his own position. Danger close, I think, is the term that you used in your book. And also, during the firefight, your platoon commander, Lieutenant John Prickett, was injured. And his platoon became your platoon. And you recognized immediately the first thing that you needed to do was take out a machine gun nest. And your rocket team did it with one shot. Very impressive. Obviously, very well-trained Marines. Tell me the story of Hill 70. It's an interesting battle because it really was two battles. Before it took place, basically, uh, Captain Gatlin called us together. And, uh, of course, I was the FO, as I had mentioned previously. He talked to us about orders from the battalion were that we would break up into three ambush sites. In other words, they would split the company. We would split the company up into three different ambush sites. He argued quite strenuously with the leadership at the battalion level uh, that he didn't think that was a good idea because in our movement, we had seen a lot of indications and warning that the enemy was in the area and probably in great numbers and probably it was not a sound tactical decision to break the company up because the strength was in the company itself. So he called us all together and said that his objections were noted, but uh, they were, we were told to continue to establish three different ambush sites. Uh, fearing that uh, perhaps the one, the one platoon that might uh, be the one the most likely to get into trouble, he assigned me to John Prickett's platoon, the 1st Platoon for India Company, 3rd Battalion, 9th Marines. And as a result, I was with John. After he briefed us and told us what he wanted us to do, uh, we broke up and he told us to move out in our positions before nightfall and we would establish our uh, respective ambush positions. And so that's what we did. And John uh, moved out with his platoon and I was with him. And uh, we had probably gone about a 1,000 meters. As we were moving out, we heard uh, incoming rounds of mortar that were landing, we assumed, back where the command group uh, for the company was located, Captain Gatlin and his command group. We stopped. Uh, John stopped us, and we waited. When we contacted, John contacted Captain Gatlin and said, you want us to come back, sir? And he said, no, I think they're just some probing action. And then shortly thereafter, so we started to move again. And then shortly thereafter, the round started to impact in a greater volume. And they were also accompanied with AK-47 fire. So we knew this was, this was a, a, an attack on the command group. Uh, at that point, Captain Getlin came up on the air and said, John, turn around and get back here in a hurry and tell Butch to 
have uh, artillery fire on these coordinates, and he listed them off. And John said, sir, that's your position. He said, I know, they're in the wire. And so basically, I on the run, uh, with my radio operator close by, uh, gave the position to um, the artillery, and they started the fire as we started to close in. So we were separated from the command group, and um, as we moved into the towards the command group, it was obvious that the enemy had already arrived at the command group, and in fact, they had set up a machine gun between us and the command group, so it was almost two battles. The command group was fighting for its life when we were trying to get there to aid and assist them, while at the same time, our way was blocked by this machine gun, and they opened fire as we came around the corner. That's when John, the platoon commander, was uh, seriously wounded, shot in the hip, and um, uh, we were we were stalled, obviously. So we took up positions and started returning fire. Uh, John, I was trying to tend to his wounds and then realized that, as I said in the book, my what now lieutenant moment had arrived and that, in fact, uh, I was no longer the, just the FO. I was also the first platoon commander given John's Graves situation. So first thing I did was give out a call for a rocket team up, a 3.5-inch rocket team. They came up. I pointed to where they needed to shoot, and they took one round, even though rounds were coming all over them, and that round uh, took out the machine gun position, and then we maneuvered uh, against the enemy threat and closed with the command group. And once you got back with the command group, how did you guys get through the evening for the, for the rest of the night, basically? Well, obviously, we were still in a dire situation. Uh, I got there. I saw that Found Captain Gatlin. He was dead. Um, the XO, uh, John Bobo, was deceased as well. They obviously had inflicted heavy casualties on the enemy, but there were still pockets of resistance. Um, basically took over the company and served as the forward air controller because the forward air controller, the pilot that was with us, he was killed. And then um, using the artillery, the aviation, and the ground troops, we, we swept the enemy off and uh, then started to reorganize and, and set up defenses for possible counterattack. How many folks were lost that evening? We had a total of 15 Marines killed, uh, and we had uh, 47 wounded, thereabouts 47. When it came time to go home, or at least begin to kind of pack things up, what did you have to do to go home that evening? Well, first we set up defensive positions. It was still nightfall, obviously. Then we sent out uh, a team to locate any of our wounded or dead. And they came back with some wounded, seriously wounded. But their actions, by their actions, if they hadn't done it, we might have lost even more. But uh, we were able to re recover our, our wounded. And then we called in a medevac helicopter. I remember going to him and... Uh, yelling in the window, um, how many can you take? And he said about 10. Of course, we had stripped all of the wounded of their equipment. And uh, we were able to put 15 on the helicopter, even though he said 10. And I was, it was another new, what now lieutenant moment because I gave him the signal to take off and uh, he kind of bounced along, but he got enough air underneath him and uh, was able to take off. And, and, the, and the great thing about that, as I found out later, is all of those 15 uh, recovered from their wounds. Wow. I told one of the lieutenants that was remaining of the officers that were out there to get what surviving leadership together and brought them in close to them and uh, close to me. 
and gave him some orders. I, I, I had to be careful because, of course, uh, some of these Marines, this is our first time in combat, and they had lost friends, either through wounds or through being killed. So I talked to them about being compassionate while at the same time reminding them they were Marines and to clean up their gear and be ready to fight again if, in fact, the enemy came back. And that's when I kind of embraced the term that you find uh, throughout the book. I call it eyeball-level leadership because I had to look uh, these young men uh, in their eye, in, in directly in their eyes, and um, it, was, it was an amazing event that night in particular. How many medals were awarded that evening? There was um, John Bobo, who was the XO, uh, received the uh, medal, Congressional Medal of Honor uh, for his actions, and uh, which, if you read the citation, is their eye-watering. And uh, Captain Gatlin uh, received the Navy Cross, as do as did uh, Top Rogers, who was the first sergeant. He was seriously wounded as well. And then uh, uh, Jack Laurinaitis, who was a Lance Corporal at the time, kind of an interesting character. Uh, might be worth talking about him if we have time, but uh, he won the Navy Cross. And uh, and then Doc Braun, uh, our Navy corpsman, significantly, uh, he was written up for an award, but uh, never received it. And I didn't find out until I was the assistant commandant that he had not received it. And we located the paperwork, and I was able to pin that on him. I think it was just after I retired at the Marine Corps Memorial in Washington, D.C. Wow. Wow. It's an amazing thing that you were in the position to find that paperwork and make sure that it got finally delivered after all those years. Incredible. Let's go ahead and talk about Leonidas. Was that the name you used? Oh, Jack Leonidas, yeah. We got time? Sure. What is his story? He's an interesting uh, young man. He was um, kind of one of those uh, Marines that you kind of box him up on peacetime uh, and then break him out when more he, he kind of gets into mischief when he, <laughs> during peacetime and uh, and uh, during wartime. Right, right. right. Yeah. Okay. He was, from, he was from Pennsylvania. Had already proven himself to be um, a heroic Marine um, previously, I think maybe five or six months before. Some actions he he did uh, during another, another fight. Uh, he took over one of the the machines that had been abandoned and turned it on the enemy and turned the tide of battle. And for that, he was uh, awarded the Silver Star. And then uh, in this battle on Hill 70, again, Jack was everywhere. Initially, he was with the mortar platoon. Uh, he took that over and uh, delivered devastating fire against the enemy. And then uh, once he ran out of mortar ammunition, he grabbed a rifle and was in close proximity to the enemy, and he retrieved uh, some of the wounded back and forth and then eventually was overcome by the enemy and was killed. Wow. I had the good honor to go down to um, Camp Lejeune at the School of Infantry where our young uh, infantry uh, enlisted troops come after boot camp out of Paris Island or San Diego, and they go through the School of Infantry for more refined training. And um, we convinced the Marine Corps to name one of the barracks down there the Laurinaitis Barracks, and for obvious reasons. And the write-up is carved in a brass plaque there telling about both his Silver Star and his Navy Cross. I would imagine that you shared that story with a few young Marines while you were in the area? Oh, for sure. I was the guest of honor during the dedication of the building, but, you know, there was a lot of Marines that showed up from India 3-9, and... Um, it, and I think that's that write-up and that 
designation of the barracks uh, will be there and will will uh, serve well to the young Marines that go through that school from now until eternity. Leadership tip from What Now Lieutenant. Strong relationships require honest communication. Now, as we've already discussed, you've had a few What Now Lieutenant moments and that occurred on, on Hill 70, but you had another after you went, you got back to the main base because you were called in front of a two-star general and his staff, and then later on with a Major Al Gray. And they asked you, okay, what did you see? What did you learn? You know, the usual after-action kind of stuff. And it was Major Gray in particular who seemed the most interested in trying to learn from the events on Hill 70. And during all of this, you were determined to do two things. First, you did not want to let your company commander, Captain Getlin, take the, the fall or blame for anything that may have not gone as well as they could have. But you also wanted to make sure the brass knew full well about the bravery of the Marines who fought with you that evening. Tell me about that what now, Lieutenant moment. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, obviously, we got... Uh, after the battle, we were moved back to Camp Carroll to refit and uh, regroup and also get filled out with uh, replacement Marines. And I was contacted and told to get into a clean set of utilities uniform because I was going to be flown back to uh, the division uh, base camp, which I was. I was debriefed by the staff. The focus of their questions was more, at least from my young lieutenant's sense, it seemed like they were looking for what did uh, Captain Gatlin do wrong or, you know, what caused this horrendous loss of uh, life, 15 Marines killed and 47 wounded, um, you know, sort of trying to figure out who to place the blame on, not so much interested in how can we avoid something like this in the future, uh, what did we do wrong and what can we do right to to avoid something like this. And I didn't really get a sense that the general, when, when he came into the briefing or debriefing, I guess, I sort of thought that that might well be his focus of effort as well. But it was this Major Gray, who I didn't know at the time, he was really asking the questions about, you know, the enemy that we were fighting, uh, how they operated, uh, what did we do right from my perspective? What did we do wrong? How could we avoid something like this in the future? And so it was kind of, it was refreshing post uh, the previous uh, debriefing. So I could see this this individual was a real warfighter and he, he was interested in uh, how can we do things better rather than trying to pin the tail on somebody uh, as being the donkey for either doing something that led to this catastrophe, which was easy enough to probably assess blame, but that wasn't my my business because after I was only a, a lieutenant at that particular time, so and my experience was was limited. So General Gray, uh, I said Major Gray, ultimately, as you read in the book, uh, he became the Commandant of the Marine Corps, and he's he's known as the guy that actually introduced all kinds of warfighting, emphasis on warfighting and maneuver warfare, and um, kind of turn the training schedules of the Marines upside down once he was in a position of leadership. 
and we will touch upon future events with General Al Gray. We'll, we'll get to that story in a little bit. Leadership Tip from What Now, Lieutenant. There's great value in seeing the world through the eyes of others. In 1970, you returned to Vietnam in an advisory role to the Vietnamese Marine Corps. And one of the things required of you was to blend as much as possible with your hosts, spend as much time as you can, live with them, et cetera, et cetera. And this included eating with them. And as a picky eater, I was particularly horrified (laughs) when, to avoid insulting your hosts, I learned you ended up eating the eyeballs of a giant fish, and you had to occasionally consume field mice when they were the only source of protein available. What value was there in living in their world as much as possible? It's critically important uh, when you're working in coalition-type operations, and that's what this was, an early, I guess, an early form of coalition operations. Uh, Basically, I was the only uh, American with them. I had a Vietnamese, we called him a cowboy. He carried my my radio and, and batteries and stuff. But other than that, it was myself. It was a fascinating tour. Uh, they obviously, their leadership, uh, at least I was fortunate enough in the battalion, I was assigned to their commanding officer. The lieutenant colonel had been a warfighter uh, a long time, a lot longer than I had. He knew his business. What I brought to the table was a second set of eyes and maybe a different way of looking at things from uh, the U.S. point of view. But more importantly, obviously, I brought the ability to bring in firepower, mostly through aviation assets, uh, if in fact the need arose. So it was a great relationship. I did. Basically, I ate what that lieutenant colonel ate. I, I paid some money uh, to him, and he would he would pool the resources and send his folks out, and they would go into the village and and buy chickens and fruit and vegetables and stuff. And uh, basically, it was it was a great relationship. Uh, the eyeball, <laughs> yeah, that was kind of a funny. I thought it would be worth it sharing. Uh, it was a it was a holiday, and uh, they showed up with this fish that was. God, the damn thing was big, and uh, and uh, as I was to learn, uh, the um, the guest of honor, which I guess I was, uh, always had the opportunity to have, take the eyeball, and so uh, <laughs> I did it, and it it went down. So there was uh, there was no further <laughs> nothing further to talk about, but it did work. The field mice, yeah, those are on occasion were mixed in, and uh, on more than a lot of occasions. How'd you do it? I just. Let it slide <laughs> and hope it stayed in. <laughs> Let it slide, and it uh, it worked out fine, you know. And, and I I was better for it because obviously I was uh, I was acknowledging my host and uh, and being and I think the big thing is trying to be part of the team, not to be uh, separate and distinct. You know, sometimes I would see other uh, advisors. They would be eating their own stuff, uh, separate and distinct from the people they were advising. And I think one of the strengths of the Marine advisory effort with the Vietnamese Marines was that we all kind of uh, ate at the same table and we fired the same weapons and uh, we trusted each other. And that's, that's, that builds trust, trust when you uh, do things such as that. Yeah, definitely. 
Now, you described the the post-Vietnam years as a tough time for the Marine Corps. In another what now lieutenant moment, you were the executive officer for a unit at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Morale and discipline were low in the Corps. So low, in fact, Marines were dying from using drugs. Some openly disrespected those in their chain of command. And at one time, you had to actually grab a Marine around the collar to make a point. And there was just a lot of Marines who did not believe in the Corps. Then comes along a new commandant, General Lewis Wilson, and he vowed he was going to set things straight. And if he only had two Marines left in the entire Corps when he was done, so be it. Now, he was successful, according to your book. What leadership lessons did you see? What things did you learn watching this transformation of the Corps back to the professional service that you knew and loved? It was a a trying time for just the reasons you mentioned early on. The um, There was a, a strong case of going home-itis. Young Marines had served in Vietnam. They had been in combat, uh, a lot of them, and they just wanted to go home. And uh, and you can't blame them. Uh, and they weren't, They it was a difficult adjustment for many of them, uh, being back in a peacetime environment where the rules and regulations were back in force and um, where they might have been a little go along to get along when they were overseas. Uh, now there was haircuts, it was shine, shiny boots, and it was keeping them the area clean and, and, and up to speed. So it was tough for a lot of these young men and women, and um, a lot of them just couldn't stand the rigor of the, and the discipline associated with a peacetime Marine Corps, and uh, a lot of them got into mischief, into trouble. And uh, the, the example you 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 pointed about the young marine who was in the in the in the rack when I came through the squad bay and asked him what he was doing and he didn't get out of the rack. He knew I was a lieutenant and I guess I was a captain then. He 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 didn't get out of the rack and uh, uh, so he was sitting on the bed and he said, "I'm getting out of your green machine and uh, I'm I'm going to go see the old man again in office hours. I've already got a summary court martial or I've already got a special. And I'm going to I'm going to get out of your green machine and." Of course, my temper overloaded my brain, and, and I grabbed him, soon to realize he was about three inches or four inches taller than me, but I guess I got the message to him that I wasn't happy, So, uh, and it was yes sir, no sir after that. But then, as, as you mentioned, uh, General Wilson came in and just said, I don't care if it's just me and the sergeant major left in the Marine Corps, we're going to go back to being Marines and uh, with with young men and women who want to be Marines. I mentioned in the book, it was like opening the window and fresh air coming into the Corps. And he instituted something we call the expeditious discharge business. And for those Marines that were just uh, perennial problems and not fit to be wearing the uniform anymore, uh, we were able to get them out expeditiously and not have uh, long lines waiting to have office hours as we had heretofore. So it uh, it really worked well. Uh, and we started to get young Marines that had not been to Vietnam coming out of the boot camps who joined up to be Marines and, um, and, and live to the rules and regulations and discipline that's necessary for an organization such as us. And, uh, and, and the Marine Corps turned around uh, almost a, a 180 turn and, uh, to, to the better. Well, my son joined the Marine Corps. 
2006 or so. And I can tell you the Marine Corps recovered very well. It was a great choice for him to make. And as a retired Air Force Master Sergeant myself, I was surprised that he chose the Marine Corps, <laughs> but that was his choice. And he, he loved it. He loved it a lot. And he, as a matter of fact, he learned to be a combat correspondent in the Marine Corps. And he is making a living as a cinematographer in Hollywood these days. So you gave him skills that prepared him for the rest of his life, not only with a camera, but in life overall. Yeah, it's really amazing. You go down to the boot camps and you, and you watch the graduation ceremonies and the parents, you just kind of watch rather than engage with them. Sure. You can engage with them later, but just watch parents and, and it's almost like they can't believe that that's their son and daughter that they sent down there those many weeks before. I had that experience. And the, the transformation is just absolutely phenomenal. Leadership tip from what now, Lieutenant? No two battles are ever the same. Now, around the time Desert Storm broke, quite a few years had passed without a major conflict. You were wearing your first star and you had been recently promoted to Brigadier General and you received a call from General Al Gray, the same guy who was a major, Major Gray, who sat down with you to discuss Hill 70, who you feel got it, who wanted to improve Marine Corps war fighting from the lessons from Hill 70. Anyway, he helped pin your first star on, and the two of you remained friends over the years. General Gray offered you a position with the U.S. Central Command, also called CENTCOM, and he offered you a position on CENTCOM Commander General Norman Schwarzkopf's staff in Saudi Arabia to help prepare for the invasion of Kuwait and drive Saddam Hussein's military back into Iraq. And when you arrived, it was your first general impression about the CENTCOM staff. They kind of went about their days sort of lackadaisically, kind of acting like they were still back in Tampa, Florida, going home and picking up a burger and fries as they went home to the kids. But that wasn't the case at all. They were in a war zone. And then to make matters worse, your new boss saw you and treated you as a threat to his authority. What were the lessons that you learned seeing all of these things? Well, the first thing I think um, worthy of mentioning is uh, General Gray called me. Of course, I had known him as, a, as a, a battery commander and as a battalion commander working for him. I was his, uh, he put me into the, running the amphibious warfare school in Quantico, which is young captain school. It's sort of their first step towards becoming a, a professional Marine for 20 years or 30 years. So it's an important school and, and, it, and it serves a great mission. So I'd work for him there and, and it helped him at his urging uh, introduce maneuver warfare and, and different ways of viewing war fighting. So we were pretty close. He contacted me, as you said, um, my wife had been going through some serious uh, cancer treatment, and uh, he said, I know Kathy's having some problems, um, but General Powell, at the request of General Schwarzkopf, realizes he doesn't have anybody with ground combat experience on his staff, and he was looking for either an Army officer or a, a Marine officer with ground combat experience at the general officer level. 
he said, so I'd like to nominate you, but I don't want to do it if you don't think it's a good time to leave. And so, obviously, um, I appreciated the call. And uh, Very decent of him to ask. Yeah. yeah. So I, I talked to Kathy, my wife, and she said, you're probably the most logical choice. And the reason she said that is that I had spent uh, almost three years down in uh, Central Command as a uh, colonel in the policy strategy division, but I also uh, headed up a team that did some very sensitive planning with the different countries in the Middle East. So I knew a lot of the junior, major, lieutenant colonel uh, folks in the different service, uh, different uh, countries over there. So it was probably a logical choice or a good nomination. As General Gray said, if I nominate you, I'm positive you'll, you'll be selected. So as I said, I spoke Kathy. She said, good to go. And so we were she was driving me to Dover about a week later, and we were. I was in Riyadh shortly thereafter. And uh, you're not part of the command, but all of a sudden you get beamed in. And of course, the existing folks sometimes, if it's not handled right, you know, they got a feeling like they're either second-class citizens or they're not good enough. They're not up to the task, and so it's 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 a difficult. It's kind of a a little bit of a kabuki dance as you come in to try and make sure that. They understand that you're there to help. You're not there to take over. And and I did have I did have some challenges with um, the J uh, J three at that time was a, a two star Air Force officer. Footnote: A J three is the director of operations for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and serves as an advisor and communications hub between Pentagon leadership and combatant commanders. Uh, J-3 at that time was a, a two-star Air Force officer, and for some reason, he and General Schwarzkopf did not get along too well. But um, from my point of view, he was eminently qualified to be the J-3, and um, I was there to help him as best I could. But it took a little a little bit of a process to convince him that I was there to help him uh, and not there to take his job uh, or, or anything of that nature. Uh, and once we once we settled that, then we we cooked with steam, I guess, and uh, I was able to support him in his endeavors as the J three and me as the deputy J three. So you were able to make a positive out of a negative, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, it almost goes back to eyeball level leadership, looking uh, that uh, two star in the eye and just saying, "Hey, I'm here to help you, uh, and uh, if you don't want me to help you, then." I can go go to see General Schwarzkopf and, and see if I can get transferred over to the Marine Corps out on the East Coast. And he said, are you threatening me? I said, no, sir, I'm just telling you the way it is. I'm here here to uh, make your job easier, I hope, and make this whole situation work to the benefit of everybody. And uh, he accepted that, and we, we cooked along uh, fine from there on out. Straight honesty. I found it to be very effective. Uh, it can be scary sometimes if folks aren't really prepared for it. But if you look them in the eyeball, like you said, eye-level leadership, and just tell them straight up what the deal is, a lot of times people can at least accept it if they know what the truth is. Mm-hmm. Is that your position as well? I agree. I agree. I think if, you know, I found out from all of the different wonderful leaders I had the opportunity to work with, uh, some more difficult than others, as as you might imagine, uh, but they, if you're candid with them and uh, they know that you're, you know, you're there to support their efforts, whichever, whatever the endeavor may be, and that uh, you're not there to, to uh, say, look at me, but to say, look at, look at how we as a team are performing. Then, I, then I think uh, that's the key to success uh, for anybody, and that's uh, that's something I try to pound into the young, 
lieutenants and, and officers I have the good opportunity to still work with. Leadership tip from What Now Lieutenant. Perception can be more important than reality. Now, in yet another What Lieutenant moment, Desert Shield, Desert Storm was probably the very first war essentially fought on television. And as you note in your book, CNN was in its infancy, still trying to establish its position in the news industry. And suddenly, the position of press briefer held an all new level of importance. And when a few folks were not really working out as well as they could have, you were given a chance to try your hand. And fortunately, or unfortunately, given for an old combat Marine like yourself, you did a very good job. (laughs) And then chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Army General Colin Powell, decided you were the guy. You would be the main DOD spokesman. What was that experience like, and what were your biggest challenges? Yeah, that was um, interesting. They were giving briefings out of the Pentagon, and they seemed to be going really well, uh, Lieutenant General Kelly in the Pentagon at that particular time. And then we we pulled uh, different generals, not we, but uh, General Schwarzkopf or General Johnston, who was the, uh, the chief of staff, were trying different people to uh, try and take on the in-theater a briefing of the press because the press corps, as you well know from your past experience, was there was a, a huge amount of international press plus the U.S. press plus the coalition press. So, uh, and we just weren't doing well, and Colin Powell was not happy about it. But General Schwarzkopf, in, in some sense, was still had in his mind the press in Vietnam. And uh, it, it wasn't distrust, but he just didn't have an appreciation for them. But he quickly realized that uh, General Powell was not fooling around, that he wanted to get somebody in there that could answer the mail uh, when the press were asking these questions. So General Johnston, who was the chief of staff, um, made a suggestion that uh, perhaps uh, he could do one day, one day he would do the briefing and then uh, we'll have uh, Butch do it the second day and then we'll just keep flipping like that. He was pushing back against using me because I ran the war room at night and I think he was fearful just uh, I, th- there was too many competing demands for me to be able to do both. But Johnston finally prevailed and um, so I, I did it. Um, the first time I did it, uh, not without nerves for sure, because it was a new new ball game and I had never done anything like that before. It seemed to go well. And then uh, the next time it was General Johnson's turn to go again. And he said, I can still remember General Schwarzkopf turning his head and say, why? And that was a, the acknowledgement that I was now the briefer and General Johnson was going to get back to being chief of staff business, which was an all-encompassing job to begin with. So from then on out, basically, I did the briefings. Uh, We used to have a a get-together with um, the public affairs people, and they would beat around the bush with all the different press during the, the day. And then just before the briefing, we would meet for about an hour and do a murder board, so to speak. And they would ask me questions that they thought were going to be asked during the briefing. And it was sort of two good purposes. One, it, it identified problem areas. If I didn't know the answer, they would, they would readily find the answer to the question. And then two, it kind of got you into a listening response mode so that when you get up in front of the cameras and the microphones, when the question was coming, your brain was already 
really starting to turn and figure out what the answer was. So it was um, it was an exciting time. I used to have to go up uh, out of the war room, go across the street in Riyadh, and and go to a hotel there, and then they would they would signal me when it was time to go up there, and then the questions would come, and then. Uh, Hopefully, I knew the answers. If I didn't know the answers, the one thing I learned real quick was to be able to say, I don't know, but I'll get back to you. Sure. Yeah. Again, an honest answer is better than blowing smoke, basically. Now, what's the difference between the adrenaline one gets before going into combat and the adrenaline one gets before going on live television in front of the entire world in a possibly hostile (laughs) press corps? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if I if I'm intelligent enough to tell you what the difference is. Uh, the immediate action in a combat situation obviously speaks for itself. Uh, safety of the troops and uh, overcoming of the enemy and 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 trying to beat back the make sure that in fact your troops are safe and sound. In front of the, uh, it's not a life and death situation, uh, but sometimes in your mind it could be because some of the questions were just off the wall, and you never, even though even though the murder board was great, you just never knew that. that I always said the last question usually was the most lethal one. For some reason, they would somebody would just come up. With, I think they were running out of questions, and they would just come come up with something off the wall, and that would always used to be the one that I might have to say, geez, I don't know for sure, but let me get back to you. And But that was a key ingredient, though. By saying, I don't know, here you are as a one-star general in front of the world, so to speak, saying, I don't know, is kind of, that's a tough position to take. But I found out that, the, you know, honesty and integrity built trust. And once the press trusts you, then they always gave you the benefit of the doubt when the questions came up. If you came back and said, geez, I'm not quite sure about that. Let me get back to you. And you made sure that you did get back to them. Then in fact, you established that uh, that feeling of trust between the two of you and it worked out to the advantage of both. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Now, the highway of death. As coalition forces pushed the Iraqi military out of Kuwait, their main way back home became dubbed the Highway of Death. Hundreds, thousands of military vehicles driving primarily along one major road in the middle of wide open desert. You could not ask for a more perfect setting to use modern military power. And in your book, you said it was like watching General Schwarzkopf conduct a symphony And you had a front row seat right in the middle of everything, just like always. What did you see? Well, the biggest thing was how situations can change. Initially, the press and us, the military, and the coalition forces were euphoric over the situation that brought about the highway of what became known as the highway of death. We were going after the enemy. They were retreating. We were wiping them out. We were attacking them at will and casualties and destruction of property and everything was taking place, you know, against the threat. But shortly that changed and and there was a feeling of maybe we've got to be careful because it might be a piling on sense that in fact, hey, you guys are you know, you're taking advantage of a disadvantaged foe, of a weaker foe. Uh, and, and we had to be very sensitive to that because the coalition was made up of different countries that were close to the people of, of, of Iraq. And so slowly and surely, we tried to 
get this thing under control so that in fact it wouldn't be it wouldn't be looked upon as a an unfair fight i guess is the best way to put it and so that was a learning experience for me and it was interesting to j just watch uh, the dynamic within the war room with different general officers around the table leadership tip from what now lieutenant change can take you in the most unexpected direction 1996 you became the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps. Then commandant, General Charles Krulak, gave you a few main tasks for you to cover shortly after you arrived. You know, get the Osprey program back on track, no problem. You know, a decorated Marine, you can handle that. But then he wanted you to also be the point person on don't ask, don't tell. This had to be a bit outside your wheelhouse. And at the time, gay people were not allowed to serve in the military. Fraternization was another issue being discussed at the time. And fraternization in the military means improper relationships between higher ranking and lower ranking people, generally in the same organization, but not necessarily. And the commandant, again, made you his point person for don't ask, don't tell. Just, again, you find yourself right in the center of the action. This was a highly emotional and controversial subject. What unique challenges did you face in taking that first step toward allowing gay people to serve in the Marine Corps? The first thing I r realized is I had to get educated. I had to understand, you know, really what don't ask, don't tell meant, and then what its implications were for the warfighting capability of, of the Marines. General Krulak was obviously very helpful in sitting down and discussing with me his opinion and his thoughts on the process. And then the, then the real yeoman's work was to go out and to make sure that the fleet, the fleet marine forces, and, and the leadership understood the ramifications of don't ask, don't tell, and what the Marine Corps position could be and how we could accommodate this and make it work for all, all of those affected. This was not an easy process because, you know, you got the ura ura type, uh, you know, folks and saying, no, we're not going to have these guys or gals in our Marine Corps. And we're, and then you had the retired community uh, who uh, can sometimes can be, sure. <laughs> you know, yep. can be just as challenging as the active duty uh, for obvious reasons. And so it was an education process. So I was on the road a lot. Uh, at the schools, the schoolhouses, and the other places talking about that. And at the same time, working within DOD to make sure that we understood exactly what the ground rules were for this. I'll tell you to the truth, that when I got out to the, to the rank and file and the troops out in the field, I found out that they were less worried about it and its impact on its combat readiness than probably the, the senior people at headquarters Marine Corps and around the different DOD installations. So it was kind of an education process for me in delivering the message, basically getting people out there and delivering the message and the leadership in particular, making sure that they understood it. I had a bigger problem from my from a personal point of view with the fraternization issue because the uh, DOD and some of the lawyers within DOD were ready to sort of loosen the interpretation and the implementation of fraternization. And of course, as far as the Marine Corps was concerned, this was a, a completely against good order and discipline, and we weren't going to let something like that to tra transpire without a fight. And I had some pretty 
nose-to-nose discussions uh, within DOD, telling them basically that's it, that in fact the Marine Corps is not going to condone fraternization for the obvious reasons of its impact on the warfighting capabilities of the Marine Corps and we thought the other services. And uh, I think, well, I got the point across and I think uh, General Krulak um, obviously supported me, but uh, he also at the same time let me let me carry the ball myself, and then he would give me some vectors if he thought I needed some reinforcing fires. But most of the time, uh, I could hold my own with most of the audiences to which I had to speak. Eye level, very honest discussions, I would imagine. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the things. Yeah, I think reputation. You know, people knew me. Uh, they knew General Krulak. They knew what we the, the expectations of what we saw our Marine Corps was going to be, and I think that's what it is: I, the professional reputation and and standing up and saying we we can go this far, but we can't go any further, and you've got to understand it. Leadership tip from what now, Lieutenant. Your past shapes your future. You are now retired from the Marine Corps. You live in Washington, D.C., very near to the Vietnam Wall. And in reading your book and considering, you know, how you looked back on your career for all of those years, the one impression that I got was that your experiences on Hill 70 in many ways shaped your entire career. Do you feel that way? And if so, why? You know, that's a good question. Yeah, that was a defining moment, obviously. You kind of wonder, in fact, I wondered at the time when it was, um, when my enlistment, I guess, um, I could get out of the Marine Corps at the end of uh, four years, and I was in Boston, my home area. I had got married after I returned from my first tour from Vietnam. We had a four-month-old son, and it was decision time. Uh, whether to to get out of the Marine Corps and pursue other endeavors, probably in the education field, which was sort of where my interests lie, um, or stay in the Marine Corps. And uh, it was an interesting time and a discussion with my wife, Kathy, and, and um, my biggest problem was that I had great job, job satisfaction. I enjoyed being around the Marines. In fact, after I retired, one of the, one of the frequent statements uh, uh, questions after I retired was, do you miss the Marine Corps? And I always said, no, I don't miss the Marine Corps, but I do miss the Marines. And there's a subtle difference. And I think that's really what it was. And uh, so, uh, yeah, we made that decision knowing full well that if I decided to stay, I was going back to Vietnam. Uh, But we made that decision and we stayed. And of course, I did go back to Vietnam. Those Marines in Hill 70, and, and we've, we've remained very tight. Uh, the India 3-9, we've had reunions just about every second year for the last 15 or 20 years. I, I gave one, actually uh, hosted one uh, with a fellow Marine in Boston and actually used Hull, my hometown. We used the hotel there, and then uh, we took them into Boston, and then we uh, also so we rented a boat and did a tour of Boston Harbor and everything. Just had a great time, 150 people there, counting wives and kids. And so we stayed tight, uh, and we, we share emails all the time. John Prickett, the first platoon commander, is uh, was the best man in my wedding. I talk to him and text him probably three or four times a week at the least. So we've stayed close. 
He actually named one of his daughters after her name is Callie Neal Prickett. Wow. So, That's so great. We, we've stayed close. So, yeah, that was a defining moment, the Hill 70. But um, he saw good Marines do what they were supposed to do and uh, and many times at, at personal sacrifice. Yeah, of course. Now, you see yourself as the representative of India Company, 3rd Battalion, 9th Marines. Of course, the unit you fought with on Hill 70 the representative toward the Vietnam Wall, and you visit the memorial often. And in your words, especially to visit your brothers who you lost that evening. And one day you were doing your usual thing, visiting the wall, standing in front of panel 17E, row 70, where their names are located. And then something unusual happened. One of those strange coincidences. I'm not a big believer in coincidences, but this is a really neat story. What happened on that day? Yeah, I think you're you're talking about the little old lady that... Um, yes, I am. I, I do get on. In fact, I was just down there uh, two days ago, down visiting the wall, panel 17E, uh, row 70 and below. I uh, usually get down there and just... Uh, couple moments of just kind of looking and reflecting and kind of talking with those guys. And then uh, actually now I've I found another one down uh, on row uh, 20, uh, panel 20, I should say, a kid who I was introduced to during a remembrance dinner that I was a guest of honor for up in Duluth, Minnesota, of all places. <laughs> Pretty cool place to go visit. But they had a remembrance dinner because Duluth, uh, interesting fact, they had five Medal of Honor winners in Duluth. Wow. They had one that was uh, won by a, a guy named uh, Machinist Mate Nelson during peacetime. One of the few people that we've ever heard of, of peacetime Medal of Honor. He basically stuck some cardboard in his mouth and rushed into a burning ship and saved a uh, countless number of sailors. Uh, fellow shipments uh, on the coast of California. For that, he was given the Medal of Honor. Then there was three during um, World War II, one of which was a Marine. And then there was one uh, in uh, Vietnam who won the Medal of Honor by jumping on a grenade and saving the lives of many of his comrades. So I go down there quite a bit. And then I was there and this, um, I guess I was standing in front of the wall and this little old lady who was uh, a docent folks that volunteered to help people locate the names of, of lost uh, loved ones. And she said, are you having trouble finding someone? And I said, no, uh, I know where I am here. And I said, I said, what are you looking for? She said, well, I'm looking for a Bobo. And I couldn't believe it. You know, here, here was John Bobo, Medal of Honor winner, India Company, 3rd Battalion, 9th Marines. And I said, well, he's right here. Of course, I pointed him out in two seconds. And, and she, I said, you know, he, he won the Medal of Honor. And she said, and then she started checking her paperwork. And he says, yes, I do know that. Someone requested that I do an etching of his name. And I says, well, that's really amazing. I said, thank you for what you do. And then I moved out of her way. But it was kind of going back to your comment about coincidence. I'm not a, a big believer in coincidence either, but this obviously was one to remember. And you were standing right there just when someone requested that etching and, and, and she arrived. Pretty, pretty amazing story. Now, for the final question, and this is the most difficult question of the interview. Fair warning. <laughs> but I kind of sound like one of those press people in Desert Storm. <laughs> but in your book, you say you avoided visiting the wall for many reasons that you cannot articulate. Have you been able to put 
those reasons into words since you wrote the book and what would they be? Yeah, that is an interesting question. And I did avoid it. I don't know why. Well, I just, I guess, just trepidation. I, I just didn't feel like I could go down there and, um, and, um, stand there with those 15 names shouting at me. And, um, but I think once I made the decision to get down there and, and did go down there and then now go down there on a reoccurring basis during the weather, I'm down there probably three, four, five times a week. But um, I just kind of feel like I'm the rep for those India 3-9 folks that were with me and I was had the good honor to be with uh, from around the country and represent them and and, and just go down there and, and you know, hold, hold a, a couple minutes of uh, just quiet meditation and uh, just just to let uh, those folks know, there's a there's an interesting quote on the Folger Theater, which is the Shakespeare Folger Theater, and, and it's a quote uh, by a guy that um, is is extolling the virtues of Shakespeare, and he says uh, it's written in the granite on the face of the uh, Folger Theater, and it says, "You are a monument without a tomb, and you are alive still, and our books doth live while we have." Wit to read and praise to give, and I changed that a little bit and said, "You are a monument without a tomb," referring to the wall, where thy names doth live, and we have wit to read and praise to give. I think very fitting words. Retired Marine Corps General Richard Butch Neal, author of What Now, Lieutenant? Leadership Forged from Events in Vietnam, Desert Storm, and Beyond. Your time is greatly appreciated, sir. And you are indeed a true American hero and treasure. Just thank you so much for being here today. And as always, we can only cover so much in a podcast, lots more left in the book fascinating career, General. Again, thank you for your time today. Thank you, um, George, for what you do. We really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to The Leadership List, a podcast produced by the American Forces Radio Network and the Defense Media Activity. I'm George Maurer, and remember, great leaders never stop learning. Until next time. The Leadership List is a production of the American Forces Radio Network. Creative consultants Dave Beesing, CEO of Sound That Brands, a podcast development business, and AFN Radio's Grant Peters and Tom Arnholt. Additional narration provided by Tony Scott.